This is Soccer City. Don't focus on the words. Watch closely instead. That's Dan Hill's suggestion from his new book, Famous Faces Decoded, a guidebook for reading others. In a moment, Dan's going to explain how that can impact the coach-player relationship in soccer. Also today, the plight of the Puerto Rican women's national team. Anytime that um, we end a competition, the Federation fires the coach, whether they did a good job or they didn't. That's player Nicole Rodriguez with her part of the global story in the fight for gender equality. That's coming up. New York City FC has five matches remaining to determine playoff positioning. That starts on Saturday in Montreal. From Quebec, TSN's Joey Alfieri says that the impact had a difficult start with new coach Remy Gard. There was some friction. I mean, the, the media was divided on the approach. The fan base was also divided on the approach that uh, that Gard was taking. And I mean, it was just, it was like, a, here we go again. Uh, the Impact are going to have another long season where they're going to be out of it. However, things have improved for the Impact. The full interview coming up in our final segment. Dan Hill is the founder of Sensory Logic and the author of the recently released Famous Faces Decoded, a guidebook for reading others. Uh, for our purposes, I want to see how this could be useful to uh, players, parents, coaches, administrators in athletics, but specifically soccer and we welcome to our new york studios dan hill hello great. dan hello there great to be here it is so uh, nice to see you and and talk about well i should initially say congratulations on the book i mean i know this is something that you've been working on uh, we've met previously and you were anticipating its release so here it is it's here well, I used to play center midfield in soccer and ran and ran and ran. Well, this wasn't 90 minutes. This was a two-year endeavor. All right. Well, a little overtime. You have to also uh, condition yourself for, the, for those overtime periods. Exactly. So uh, this is from TJ Kostecki, uh, a friend of both ours, uh, the men's soccer coach at LIU over in the borough of Brooklyn. He says, Dan Hill provides us with an essential tool to accurately read people's emotions and situations. Coaches and leaders in all walks of life will benefit greatly from his wisdom. We now have an effective way to immediately move people forward. Those are kind words. Those are powerful words. Tell us a little bit about what this facial coding is. Sure. Facial coding is the fact that actions speak louder than words. They certainly do on a soccer field. But if you want to know how you're connecting with your players, whether they're really going to follow your instructions, how the team chemistry is working, in our faces we reveal seven core emotions. Happiness, surprise, and then five that sometimes get labeled as negative but frankly can have an advantage for you uh, in the game. Anger, fear, sadness, disgust, and contempt. So a bunch of muscle movements. What they reveal helps you know where someone's coming from. I think I told you this. I had a professor at the University of Georgia many years ago, as you might expect, Dr. Dale Leathers. And it was a nonverbal communications class. And you'd walk into this classroom and he'd have a cascade of faces on the wall. And they're each depicting a certain emotion. And I think at the time it was being used mostly by uh, – Officers of the law and the FBI, To uh, Paul Ekman did the research, and I noticed that his name is, is mentioned uh, in your book. So 
Is is it similar what you're referring to? Because we also see pictures in your book of different expressions and how to read them. Yeah, in fact, I was trained by Dr. Paul Ekman. He is the leading expert in the field. It's Charles Darwin who started this, who first realized that in your face you best reflect and communicate your emotions, in part because the face is the only place in the body where the muscles attach right to the skin. So it's quick, real-time, unfiltered data. But yes, Ekman started this in the sense that he turned it into a method methodology, so we know specifically which muscle movements go to which emotions. But boy, has this got ancient roots. You're talking about looking at the Sphinx, looking at the statues on Easter Island, totem poles. I mean, this is just how human beings are hardwired. Here's, here's my simplistic look at this. It's like, look, I can, I can look at you and can tell if you're you know, happy at the moment, maybe sad at the moment. So, so why is this a study of it? To what extent do you, you take it so that you're have a deeper meaning maybe in what somebody's really feeling. Well, you must be very good at it if you can always pick it up accurately because I did a test. I have 173 celebrities in my book. I had people say what they thought were the dominant characteristic emotions of these celebrities. They had about a 34% accuracy rate as to figuring out what were the top two. And there's a book out right now called uh, Emotional Intelligence 2.0. They ask people to self-rate how they're feeling, and they have almost the same percentage, 36% accuracy. So I think one of the things that happens in life is not only do we lie to other people, we lie to ourselves and say, hey, I'm pretty good at this. You know, I know what's going on around me. I think we could all be better, uh, and include myself, of course. We all need a feedback loop. We all need to know how we can build the rapport. So in the moment, you need to look for not just one emotion often, but is there a blend of emotions? Is there a transition to emotions? I was talking to someone the other day from Brazil, a big soccer fan. He says, yeah, we, we go from the ecstasy of scoring a goal to, oh, my God, did we make that stupid play in the defensive end of the field? So we're right over to agitation before you can blink. I trust that uh, there are deep-rooted things that we can discover here. Uh, and I, I, the one thing that's intriguing to me is how you describe the, uh, the facial muscles, you know, that they're more closely attached. And, and, and in the book, you said there, there's an abundance of expressions due to an abundance of facial muscles. Could you describe that a little bit and how that assists in what you do? Yeah, uh, Gladwell, if you go back to Blink, a bestseller, he said, you know, there's a wealth of information in the face. There sure is. We should just pay attention to it. 44 different muscle activities. We're talking about a finite set here, though. There's 23 muscle activities that correspond to those emotions I gave a moment ago. One of my favorite ones is contempt, because if we're talking about a situation TJ mentions, for instance, he might have a player who's he really needs this guy with him, but he's a bit of a prima donna, and he's got to connect with him, and he's got to find a way to make this relationship between them work. The most dangerous emotion you could probably see on a player's face that you're trying to coach is contempt, where the corner of the mouth pulls up and wide. It bears some similarity to a smile, but it sure isn't. It's a smirk. And a smirk means I don't trust you and I don't respect you. And in a marriage, this is the most reliable indicator a marriage will fail. So you can imagine between coach and player, this is not a good thing. Because that's certainly a marriage in other ways, you know, the relationship between the the coach uh, and the player. So you you mentioned the the mouth and and, uh, that area of the face, but where where is the... uh, the most uh, profitable place on the face to look? Is there, is there one, you know, because if I'm, uh, I would imagine you're facial coding me right now, Dan, at the end of this interview, I'm going to ask you to see what you came up with, but uh, is there an area of the face that we should focus on or are there different emotions to different areas of the face? 
Uh, different people play it differently. Uh, you know, I would say when I'm in Asia, the eye area is best because uh, Asians are very subtle, particularly the Japanese. Uh, my favorite haiku, only problem with haiku form, just as you're about to say something, you... That's a lot like trying to read expressions in Japan. They have what we call micro expressions that are on the face for maybe one fifth of a second. The smiles are very slight, but if you go to the eyes, that's even more reliable than around the mouth. Because of course we smile a lot. We use smiles to camouflage our, our true expressions. So I would say in some situations it's there, but uh, it really depends on the person. So what level um, do you believe uh, if you want to percentage it out, if you figure this out, but uh, the actual words from people versus the nonverbal. Uh, we're talking specifically facial coding and facial expressions. If you compare it to words versus the uh, the facial coding, what, what's the most important? Uh, it's certainly the face. So let's let's go to an interesting study by a UCLA professor. He talked about what he called ambiguous situations. It might be a power differential between a coach and a player. It might be uh, you're in an interview situation, you're going to hire someone, and they know they want the job badly, so they're going to try to give you uh, the, the nice words. Well, it turns out in these ambiguous situations, the words are worth about 7% of what's truly going on based on the study. Yeah, the voice is pretty good, about 38%, but the lion's share, 55%, is from the face. Now, if you move over, see, I thought yeah. I thought tone of voice would eclipse the face, but that's uh, that's well, somebody. Well, it who's not matters, really... but the problem is it's it's abstract. You know, you don't walk around with a tonality machine in your pocket. Uh, it just don't work that easily. Uh, and body language is fine, but there's some problems here. One is uh, soccer is a very international sport. It's one of the things I love about it. Well, the hand gestures vary by culture. Uh, the hand gestures that's just fine in Belgium might get you killed in Sicily. Uh, the next thing is that you can fake the body language. It's much larger, grosser movements. So when you talk to psychologists, they'll tell you that about 80% of them are on board that facial coding is really the cat's pajama. That percentage drops to 60% or less for body language. So it's in the game. It's worth something. I'm not denying that. But the facial coding is more precise, and it gets you to specific emotions. Body language, you can just tell you defensive versus aggressive versus open. That, that's okay. That's a starting point. But I like the specificity of facial coding. So what is the most beneficial thing? Let's let's stick with coach player, uh, because I would imagine it works both ways. Yes, I mean, oh, absolutely. The the player needs to be able to read the coach as the coach reads the player. But from from your book specifically and your studies, uh, how can uh, both parties benefit? Well, let's start with the coach looking at the player. Uh, I think you want to know: Do I really have a leader there? Do I got some mojo, some motivation? Your emotions turn on when something matters to you. So if I see my key guy and he's wilting, or my key female player and that person is wilting during the course of the game and they're not emoting, well, then I'm really concerned because there's no gas in the tank. Uh, what I have found from my study of, of athletes, in fact, I've had a front page coverage in the New York Times uh, based on my work in pro sports on draft choices and trades and team chemistry, is anger is a pretty good emotion. It's an aggressive emotion. I want to hit. Uh, I'm going to move forward, try to solve a situation. So maybe the uh, you know lower eyelid tightens a bit. Maybe the mouth gets firm, the lips press together. I like all that. But the emotion I really love uh, to see in a player is disgust, where the upper lip curls or the nose wrinkles. I have found this to be a really reliable index, by and large, to a player who almost metaphorically can't stand the stench of mediocrity. 
and they want to improve themselves. They want to go the extra mile. So if I can see anger within reason, if I can see disgust, not directed at me, the coach, and I can see some mojo, some emotional energy, then I'm happy as a coach. If I don't start to see those things and I see contempt instead, ooh, bad deal. We need to rework the chemistry. That's Dan Hill. Uh, His book, Famous Faces Decoded, a guidebook for reading others, available on Amazon. And he did facial code me. According to Dan, my smile puts me right down the middle in terms of happiness, which apparently is a good thing. Nicole Rodriguez is a high school teacher in Colorado. She teaches Spanish at Castleview High School, and she's also a member of the Puerto Rican women's national team, a team that on August the 30th joined a worldwide movement, uh, in particular from the Caribbean, to protest playing conditions while also searching for financial transparency from their federation. Trinidad and Tobago and Haiti, uh, they've been others that have added their voice as well. Nicole's voice is the next one you'll hear. Welcome to Soccer City, Nicole. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Well, let's, uh, let's go back to August the 30th. Tell us about that moment. Describe what happened and, and why it was significant. So it was actually a really historic day and game in the first place. This was the first time that Puerto Rico women's side has ever had an international friendly game. So for us, it was just a big deal in the first place. And it was also a historic day because it was the biggest crowd that we have ever played in front of in Puerto Rico. So it was 4,622 people in that stadium um, who came out to watch our first ever international friendly. So All in all, it was a historic day in the first place, and we kind of took that day to um, make a stand and uh, have our voices be heard so that uh, we could, we're we're asking for change um, in the Federation and for women's football on the island and also just in general. Now, you did something rather symbolic with an agreement from Argentina who you were playing in this friendly. What was that? Yeah, so we actually um, spoke with Estefania Bonini. She's the number 10 captain for Argentina. Um, had been reaching out to her once our friendlies were announced because we wanted to we wanted to do something different. We wanted to do something that would catch the attention of our federation, and we had no idea it would blow up as, as it did. But we talked to her to see if they would agree um, to allow us to do an act of silent protest during the game in the first minute. Um, we knew that they were fighting kind of a similar fight um, with their federation. They're well past kind of the basics of where we're at. Um, But we spoke to her, and she supported us entirely and said, yes, absolutely, our team will support you, and if we kick off, we will kick the ball out of bounds um, and respect you guys as as you do your protest. So Uh, when when they played the ball out of bounds, what did you do? So first whistle blew and they kicked off and they passed it back and then out of bounds and um, all of the starters who were on the field lined up at center field and all of the um, bench players stood up and faced the crowd and we all stood in silence for about 45 seconds and pointed at our ears. I certainly have watched it and and heard the ovation so that must have been uh, and you said it was the largest crowd to ever watch the national team play so that must have been a special moment to to kind of hear that support. It was really surreal honestly we at first if you if you listen to the video it's kind of funny because it just goes dead silent and everyone's really confused Um, and there were a few people in the crowd who knew that we were going to do it and knew what was going on Um, and I'm assuming they kind of started it up and just it was incredible just the support um, that kind of poured out from the stands. We got a little bit emotional of just, wow, okay, this 
just kind of kind of made a splash. Um, and we heard that crowd throughout the rest of the game. So it was a really awesome sense of community and support. Well, Nicole, what are your specific issues with the Federation? We wrote a letter on June 4th of this year um, to the president, kind of detailing a lot of the things that other countries um, who are fighting the same fight see as basic um, and that we are not receiving. So one of the things is just conditions of field, okay? So, for example, for training for this Argentina game or these two games, um, we were training on pitches that were completely mud, waterlogged, um, because other the club teams have a have priority on all of the fields, um, and we don't have our own training facility. So we always get bumped um, to whatever fields might be available and whatever club might decide to lend us their field. Um, and so in this case, it was a waterlogged, muddy field. Um, in addition to just training conditions, we're asking for um, for just friendly games like we don't this was like I said this was our first ever international friendly game we've only played in competitions and there's years where we've been just not training at all so from the time that we made history and made the 2016 CONCACAF finals for Olympic qualifying first time any team either men or women from Puerto Rico has made a finals in CONCACAF we, had, we hadn't played a game. We hadn't played any games until this May when we played again for qualifiers for the World Cup. So just having continuity is the biggest thing, continuity in practices, having camps, having international friendly games, and in addition, having a coach that's continuous. Anytime that um, we end a competition, the Federation fires the coach, whether they did a good job or they didn't. And for us, Shek Borkowski was incredible and was doing a really good job um, and implementing structures that we needed and professionalism that we needed. You're, you're the coach you're referring to, Shek Borkowski. Uh, mm-hmm. He has sued the Federation for nine months back pay, and the coach that preceded him has also sued the Federation. So it would yep. uh, a- appear that uh, there's a reluctance to pay the head coach of the women's national team. Yeah, there is. And it's it's all, I think the, the main thing that we're seeing is that it's all about the money honestly and that's that's what we're asking for transparency because FIFA forward program has given us money and we've researched a lot of that and we should be getting significant amounts of money per year just for the women's program and for development and we are not seeing any of that money although on the budget and you can look those up on the FIFA website um, on the budget it's saying that they're spending X amount of money for example in 2013 I think it said that they spent $63,000 on the women's side, and we didn't have any competitions that year. We were completely inactive. Both There was one competition, I think it was for either U15 or U17, they played one round of qualifiers. To, to be clear, Nicole, what you're saying is that the Puerto Rican Federation, uh, in their line items, have put things in that have not happened. Well, they're saying it has happened, and we are not seeing anything that's happened. So if you're saying that you're you're contributing $63,000 towards women's tournaments, but all of the national teams except for one competition are inactive, then that doesn't really line up. So you, uh, you played Argentina on August the 30th, and you talked about uh, a conversation with Benini, their star, their, their number 10. Uh, what was her message to you personally about all this? So... 
So she, it was actually a really incredible conversation. It's something that's definitely going to stick with me for a long time. She said that it was unfortunate that we were the ones who had to do this, that at some point or another, every women's team was going to have to stand up and fight for themselves and for the generations that were coming. And so it might not have an impact for us, but it would change the face of uh, women's soccer on the island. That was something that just really stuck stuck with me. She she believes in it and she she understands that it's going to be it's going to be a long haul. And women are fighting battles across the world for equality, not just in soccer, but in many different aspects. So this impact can be felt uh, not just on the island, but maybe worldwide. Yeah. And that's really what we want and what we want to get across. Like, yes, we want soccer on the island to be better. But if what we did and what we continue to do can be something that other maybe smaller countries like ourselves um, can can feel and, and kind of take and make their own and lift themselves up, then that's really what we want. We don't just want to um, impact ourselves. We want to be able to help others as well. And I'm curious, have you heard from other players around the world, uh, from other countries? Uh, what, what has been uh, the reaction? It's really taken off. We've gotten a lot of um, support and interaction from really all over the world. So we heard from um, Israel, from Iran, um, from Argentina, obviously, from Chile, from Germany, obviously big, big players in the United States, um, current and former. And the outpouring of support has just been incredible. And they've really, it's really encouraging. And I think that this struck a chord um, with a lot of people because it's a fight that's going on around the world, not just in the U.S. that made the headlines, not just in a small country of Puerto Rico. It's something that even the best national teams are fighting for, and they we want this to get better around the world. From the senior team of the Puerto Rican women's national team, that's Nicole Rodriguez. And we go from the Caribbean to the Canadian, New York City FC. They will next play north of the border. Well, it's time to get the opponent's perspective on the upcoming match. NYCFC at Montreal this Saturday, September 22nd. Airtime here on WNYE is 7.15 p.m. So I'd like to welcome in Joey Alfieri. He covers the impact for TSN 690 Radio in Montreal, has a daily show, but also the sideline reporter for the radio cast. And want to welcome in Joey. Joey, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So they're under a new coach this year, Remy Gard. And you look at the start of the season, Joey, just three wins in the first 15 matches. And those other 12 games, they were all losses. There were no ties in there. And the goal differential, minus 16. So that's brutal. Uh, and now it's 8-3-3 three, and three over the last 14 matches where Montreal's outscoring their opponents 22-14. to 14. First, I want to ask how restless were the supporters, maybe even management after that rugged start? Yeah, you know what? I think it was it was really interesting. It was an electric time, especially early on, because um, if you remember, uh, I mean, when things weren't going well, Remy Gard started calling out uh, players and their training habits, and I mean, there was there was some friction. I, I mean, the the media was divided on the approach. The fan base was also divided on the approach that uh, that Gard was taking. And I mean, it was just it was like a here we go again. Uh, the impact are going to have another long season where they're going to be out of it. Uh, but finally, you know what? I think I think the coach ends up winning. And, and really, I think he, he kind of broke 
uh, some of the habits. And, and look, I mean, they've had European coaches before, um, but I think, you know, somebody who's coached um, at Lyon and, and at a bunch of different stops and, and some big stops too uh, in the Premier League and all that stuff. So I think he comes in with a certain pedigree. But early on, there was a ton of friction. Um, and I'm not sure the players were buying in. But like you said, you, you, you mentioned the splits there. And something clicked, and finally it looks like the players have bought in. But there was a lot of tension here early on. Don't let the last, uh, you know, last 15 games or so fool you. It was, uh, it was tough sledding early. Well, what can you get more specific as to what you think changed? Well, I think, I think it, at a certain point, you know, the players were, or not. I'm not going to say all the players, but I think some of the players were a little bit resistant you know, as to, you know, the coach coming out and the coach's approach and, you know, talking to the media and saying, you know, this player, and I, I you know, he mentioned Dominic Lazzaro and a guy like uh, Anthony Jackson and uh, and Raheem Edwards, who's since been traded. But, you know, he singled out some players saying, like, listen, you're not training to my liking. I don't care how young you are, how talented you are, you're not going to play. Um, and, and I know that rubbed some guys the wrong way uh, early on, especially, but um, at a certain point, I think the guys bought in. I'm not sure what the specific moment was, but you can tell that this team uh, is no longer the team of last year. They're no longer the team at the beginning of the season because, I mean, they were bleeding goals. I mean, that's been a huge problem. You know, the, the impact of uh, giving up goals uh, in bunches, um, and, and there was, you know, a, a lack of focus, especially defensively. And they had some center-back injuries early on. And I think the fact that, you know, a guy like uh, Rod Fanny, who's, you know, mid-30s, uh, you know, they had to sign him uh, because – uh, Zach Diallo, who was supposed to replace Laurent Simon, blew out his Achilles early, uh, and he wasn't available. That was a major signing that didn't, you know, that didn't end up coming to fruition because of injury. But you know, they brought in Rudy Camacho, so that's a strong um, French center back duo that took some time to gel, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why they've been able to shore up things defensively. But I think the buy-in uh, has also been huge at this stage of the game. So I think you know the impact remain a team. They've always been a team. Uh, that relies on the counter to hurt the opposition. Um, but at the same time, they've always been vulnerable at the back. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because you look at the Philadelphia match, uh, at Talon Energy on the road, a 4-1 win for Montreal, their most recent match, only 40% possession. So they do like to give the other team the share of the ball and then counter with Ignacio Piatti leading that oftentimes? Absolutely, and I think the thing that makes them even more dangerous now is that they have Alejandro Silva. That was a major pickup early on in the season as well. And the first few weeks, even, you know, more than a month, I mean, it was rough. He, he ends up coming in, being their second highest paid player behind Piatti. And really, it took him some time. You know, it took six to eight weeks for him to adjust uh, to, uh, to MLS. He's a Uruguayan player who came over from uh, the Argentinian League. And, I mean, it just nothing was working early on. And now the fact that you've established, you know, you know Piatti, what he can bring on the left side. But the fact that you've established Silva on the right side gives you another lethal threat. And now that he's comfortable in MLS, you saw that uh, last Saturday against Philadelphia. He, he's very confident. And, and in the final third, the finishing hasn't necessarily been there, but he was able to finish off a couple against Philadelphia. That confidence just keeps growing and growing week in uh, and week out as he's getting more and more familiar with the league. So, uh, yeah, Piatti is a huge part. And obviously, Piatti is the straw that stirs the drink. Uh, here in Montreal, when he's not noticeable, there's a good chance the Impact are going to lose. Uh, but now they also have a threat on that other side in Alejandro Silva. Yeah, and Silva, well, if you look at those bookends, Silva, four goals, 10 assists, if I've got this accurate. And then Piatti, 14 goals, nine assists. That's pretty good. Yeah, and, and, and like I said, I mean, early on, 
uh, like we said earlier, when the fan base was restless, I mean, they were pointing to the signings that, that were made, uh, especially early on in the season with Rudy Camacho specifically, you know, the high-priced center back and Alejandro Silva. And it just wasn't working it, it, for whatever reason. And, and I know people in New York know this as well, but sometimes you bring over uh, a player from a different league, different country, and, you know, by the time they get acclimated, uh, to the league and to the culture and to the language, it takes a little bit of time. Let's talk about Piatti uh, um, for a moment. He's he's the leader for the impact over the last two years, 17 goals each season. Up in Montreal, do you all uh, recognize or feel that Piatti is one of the most uh, underrated performers in MLS? Oh, yeah, and I think that irritates a lot of the fan base, too, that he is so underrated and he doesn't necessarily get the love uh, or the calls on the field that say, you know, a Jovinko uh, will get in Toronto. Everyone likes to point to that comparison here in Montreal with that TFC, uh, you know, IMFC rivalry. Uh, but I think people here fully appreciate uh, the value and the skill and the one-on-one ability that Ignacio Piatti brings to the table uh, week in and week out. And like I said earlier, if Ignacio Piatti is not on, and it's happened, I mean, he's not, you know, a threat week in and week out. I mean, it's normal. It's a long MLS season. And when he's not on his game, you certainly notice that the impacts are nowhere near as dangerous. And just because of the market he plays in and the country he plays in, that he's certainly one of the more underrated guys in the league. Joey Alfieri, he uh, covers the Montreal Impact for TSN 690 Radio in Montreal. Joey, thank you so much for sharing a few uh, thoughts on the, the Impact and the big game coming up this Saturday. Thanks for having me. Well, that'll do it for Soccer City. I'm Glenn Crooks, and have a great week of soccer.